Uh, So if you turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 5, starting at verse 1, we're not going to read it yet, but you can hold your place, Gospel of John, chapter 5. And in the Gospel, according to John, the Holy Spirit has given us a work that is not only spiritually powerful, but it's actually a really incredible literary achievement. Uh, The way John introduces and builds on different themes in his Gospel establishes a rich theological framework, and yet he writes with language that is so simple that his works are a staple of introductory New Testament Greek courses. Over the course of a lifetime, scholar and layman alike can come back to the in-depth study of this book again and again and be blessed and challenged afresh every single time. It's complex and rich and very profound, very meaningful, but it's simple enough to be presented to children or to somebody who's an unbeliever and has no acquaintance with the, with the Bible. Also that they may believe in the Lord Jesus and receive life in his name. But time would fail me to lay out the entire structure of the work in the introduction to this sermon. So we cannot here discuss all the layers and recurring themes in the gospel. One of them, however, is very relevant to this message. In the Gospel of John, John highlights seven key signs. Now, the Lord Jesus performed many signs in his earthly ministry. And just as with a road sign, it is the purpose of these signs to point to a reality that is much greater than itself. Within his Gospel account, John highlights seven signs in particular. He explains his reason for choosing these particular seven in the last two verses of chapter 20, where he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So each sign is meant to strengthen our faith in Christ, in his sovereign lordship, and in his delivering power. Now, the sign we're going to see today performed in John chapter 5 is a classic example of how John depicts the earthly ministry of Jesus. He is the irresistible force moving all immovable objects. And all will be moved toward one of two final outcomes in the end, life or judgment. Would you pray with me? Great Father of glory, pure Father of light, how glorious you are and how great that you would send your Son, the Lord Jesus, your image, the image of the invisible God, to come to earth and to live this perfect life and to glorify you from the heart perfectly and to die an atoning death for us, for us sinners, so that we could be made your righteousness in him. God, we thank you for the glorious gospel. We thank you for this Sunday. We thank you for bringing every one of us here. We thank you for the work you're doing in our lives. Be glorified in all that is said from this pulpit today, I pray, Father. And I thank you for the grace you give me to speak. I thank you for the grace you give all of us to hear. Be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. So just one note about this passage before we begin reading. Depending on what Bible you have, you may see verse 4 in brackets, or you may not see it in the text at all. It may be in just a footnote. Um, Now, I don't have time to go into detail here, but what was numbered as verse 4 was most likely not part of the original text. 
Uh, in all likelihood, somebody copying this chapter early on uh, probably jotted that little note into the margin, which uh, as kind of a study note, and then it ended up being copied into the text somehow. Um, the verse doesn't add anything of substance to the narrative, uh, nor does it seem to have been written by John. So for our purposes today, I will skip from verse 3 to verse 5. John chapter 5 then, starting at verse 1. And I may actually stop after verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So right here, we see the Lord Jesus arriving at the center of the place of God's worship by his people, Jerusalem, where a large crowd was assembled together for a religious feast. The religious leadership has been comfortably ruling the people without any serious challenge for some time now. Still, God has been watching them and judging, and he has sent his son for a reckoning. But first, he comes across a paralytic laying at the side of a pool, verses 2 through 6. Now, there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. We'll just stop there. The man in question was not an important figure in society. In fact, John doesn't even record his name. Multitudes had walked past him, and depending on where he was positioned, uh, people were probably even stepping over him. But the triune God knew exactly who he was. God knew the man's needs, his pain, and his weakness, though many near him did not. And before God had his son confront the Pharisees, he sent him on a mission to this forgotten man. May we not lose sight of the fact that that same triune God knows us and our needs. No matter how ordinary or unremarkable you or I may think ourselves to be, your life was given to you by the triune God, and it exists by His sovereign will for His purpose and with meaning. He knows your needs and struggles, your challenges and your thoughts, even as we assemble here now in His holy presence. Note two more things about this paralytic. The man had been paralyzed for 38 years, a long, long time. In that time, he had grown to see the waters of the pool as his only hope, his ticket out of misery and despair. How many times do you think he thought he could somehow wriggle into the pool only to watch another person make it in ahead of him? With how many people do you think he struck up a conversation Uh, trying to get them to pledge to throw him in, only to be found alone at the sudden, unpredictable moment when he needed someone. It's not even like he could pay anyone to stay with him. He would have been destitute just laying out in the sun all day. This man was powerless to help himself and also hopeless. Maybe you have regrets. Maybe you can relate to a level, a sense of hopelessness on some level. Maybe you have regrets about bad decisions or broken relationships or lost relationships, squandered opportunities or any number of other things in life. Maybe your regrets aren't about your life, but about the life of someone you know and care about. 
Either way, we have good news here. Look at verses 8 and 9. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now let's take a moment to appreciate just how much was overcome in a single moment after 38 years with a single sentence from the Lord. Not only does this four-decade paralytic rise to his feet on legs that had to have been severely atrophied, at the Lord's command he takes up his bed with arms that could not have been much stronger. Think of it. Even if physical therapy had been possible for this man, it would have required a very long and grueling process just to get him to stand, let alone to walk, to say nothing of carrying his bed. Yet the Son of God utters his voice, and the results are both perfect and instantaneous. The man's powerlessness was not a factor in light of Christ's power. His hopelessness vanished immediately at the voice of the Son of God. And the man did absolutely nothing to earn it or even to help make it happen. This is a picture of the gospel if we perceive it here. Do you feel like it's too late for you to receive a second chance in life? Or do you feel like things are so hopeless that even if you had a second chance, you are powerless to do anything with it? There is good news for you here. Your ability to change, to behave, and even to hope are not the basis for God's mercy through Christ. This is one of the lessons that we take from the Gospel of John. Contrary to what you may have thought, or what faith healers often falsely teach, J.M. Boyce rightly observes that in John, the signs are not occasioned by faith. They are occasions for faith. They are given to provoke faith and strengthen it. In other words, we don't make them happen by our faith. They are done to give us faith. Whether you sit today in the ruins of a broken life characterized by regret or in a place of success and happiness, there is no gospel other than that found in Scripture alone. Salvation is granted by the grace of our Heavenly Father alone, through spirit-wrought faith alone, which trusts in Christ alone. It is not the product of our effort but of the triune God alone, and He alone will receive all the glory. Amen? If we miss these principles and do not yield to God, seeking His glory, if we instead vainly seek glory from one another, this irresistible force, the Son of God, will move our immovable hearts to a different outcome. Now that we have witnessed the sign, we see what unfolds in its wake, the controversy. Let's start reading again, but starting back at verse 8, just for context. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me. That man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. So now, before we go further, we need to understand that there is a strong distinction between the biblical law given by God the Father through Moses and the unbiblical additions to the law, 
which were devised by religious leaders. Now, the reason they're hassling this man is because the act of carrying a burden outside one's home was prohibited on the Sabbath, not by God's law, but by them. In the Pillar New Testament commentary on John, Dr. D.A. Carsons writes the following, The Old Testament had forbidden work on the Sabbath, but what is work? The assumption in the scripture seems to be that work refers to one's customary employment, your regular job, in other words. By Old Testament standards, it is not clear the healed man was violating the law since he did not normally carry mats around for a living. According to the tradition of the elders, however, the man was breaking the law since he was violating one of the prohibited 39 categories of work to which the law was understood to refer. Close quote. To be absolutely clear, the Son of God would never and did never break his Father's law nor would he induce others to do so. In Matthew 5.19, he says that whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches people to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But by the rightful authority that he has, in obedience to the command of the Father, we do see him defy some of the unbiblical traditions of the elders. In Matthew 23, he tells his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees are seated in the chair of Moses. Therefore, do whatever they tell you and observe it. But don't do what they do, because they don't practice what they teach. They tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. You see, these leaders had so twisted God's word that the people were not able to hear his call for themselves. As Jesus went on to say in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. And so God, in compassion for his people, is working through his Son to vindicate his good law and to free his people from ungodly religious leadership. Yes, Jesus knew about the rabbinical regulations against carrying a burden on the Sabbath. He also knew that it was the Sabbath. So the Son of God couples this miraculous show of His divinity with a command that contradicted the religious leaders' regulations. The triune God is deliberately forcing the religious leaders into an inescapable confrontation. And his actions reveal their hardness of heart. This man's healing after 40 years doesn't even faze them. They only saw his divine healer as a threat to their power. Let's read verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him, the former paralytic, in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Earlier, you'll recall we noted that God knew the man and his needs, even if many did not. Now, I could go out to the world and proclaim to smiles and applause the truth that Jesus knew this man as no one else could and healed him. Indeed, that is wonderful. It would, however, be less popular for me to point out how, as we just heard, the Lord also knew all of his secret sin and that it was no less important to God to record that here than it was to record the healing itself. We do not here see evidence that the man obeyed Christ's command to repent, but this much is certain. After this encounter with the Lord Jesus, 
he would never be the same again. If he repented and believed, he would receive new life and escape the judgment of God. If he did not, however, his burden of judgment grew immeasurably heavier. But either way, the Son of God spoke and the man's status quo would change forever. Rest assured, friends, that every time the gospel is proclaimed, the Lord Jesus is present. And in some sense, your status quo is upset. Whether we receive his word determines what our end will be. This irresistible force, who is Christ, is moving every immovable object, and he will move every one of us. One day you will stand before the one who judges all according to the perfect standards of his Father. With perfect knowledge of our lives, our deeds, our words, our thoughts, and even the hidden motives of our heart. And there are only two ultimate outcomes. In the end, you will either face judgment according to your unforgiven sin, or if you flee to the judge himself for mercy, eternal life in the warmth of God's favor. There is no third path. How will the Son of God reward you? With life or with judgment? Let's return to the text, verses 14 to 18. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, there is some disagreement on the man's motives in immediately identifying Jesus to the religious leaders. John MacArthur sees this as evidence of, quote, ingratitude and obstinate unbelief, while John Calvin says the man only wanted to render glory to Christ for the miracle. Whatever the man's intention, his report set into motion a series of confrontations between Christ and the religious leaders, just as God had ordained. And when those religious leaders, still showing no wonder at the miracle, accused Jesus of breaking their rules and therefore God's law, Jesus responds in verse 17 by staking his claim that he is equal with God. Well, that escalated the dispute. Now they began seeking all the more to kill him, verse 18. So they appealed to God's law, not realizing that God is the Father of the very one they are trying to kill. In chapter 14, verse 9, the Son states that whoever has seen me has seen the Father. This is because the Son of God is perfectly one in character with the Father. The Son of God is perfectly one in character with the Father. That means that the religious leaders reveal by their hatred of the Son that they have hated his Father as well. And this is key to understanding the rest of this chapter. They reveal by their hatred of the Son that they have hated his Father as well. So the sign has provoked the controversy, which is now raging. But the controversy will be settled by none other than the judge. 
Let's go back to verse 17, and this time we'll read through verse 20. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. See the Son of God here throw down the divine gauntlet. First, he tells them that he is equal with God. Then he elaborates on that by saying that he himself does nothing, nothing, except what he sees the Father doing. Then he says that everything the Father does, he also does, creating life, sustaining life giving the law, receiving worship, whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And this is a claim that no other man can make. And just as unique as the Son's equality of deity with the Father is his identity of character with him. Identity of character refers to him being exactly the same in character. The Son says things like, My father is working, and I am working. The son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. All Christ's works are shown to him by the father. So this identity of character between father and son, there being one in character, the same in character, is so absolute in purity and in scope that, as we are about to read in verse 22, the father can and does delegate His divine prerogative to judge mankind to the Son. And so as judge, the Lord Jesus speaks to them and to all of us about the nature of the ultimate judgment. Now as we read verses 21 through 27 in a moment, take special note of the words life and judgment. Life. And judgment, because these are two themes on which he is about to speak, starting at verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, So he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Now, each of these verses could get a sermon by itself, but just to briefly address the themes of life and judgment in these verses. Life, 21, as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Judgment, 22 and 23, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. 
as the Son shows the character of the Father, all who see him will show by the way they honor or fail to honor the Son, whether they truly honor God the Father. Life and judgment. Look at verse 24. If the Son gives life to whom he will, as we heard earlier, to whom does he will to give life? Verse 24, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Life again in 25 and 26, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so he is granted to the Son to have life in himself. And judgment in 27, and he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. That was the summary of life and judgment in those verses, but now, a summary of the summary. Here's what the Lord said on those two themes in these verses. On life, he says, Father and Son, raise the dead and give life as they will, and they will to give life to those who believe. On judgment, He says that because the Son displays the Father's words and deeds to all who see Him, all who see the Son reveal how they do or do not honor the Father in their reaction to Him. And the Father vindicates the Son's identity of character with His own by handing all judgment to the Son. So what does this mean for us? The Son tells us in verses 28 and 29, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. There it is, life or judgment. But there is cause for a question here. According to verse 25, all the dead will hear his voice and live. But according to verse 29, only some of those who live will be resurrected to life. How do we straighten this out? Well, life here in verse 29 is contrasted with judgment. Some are raised to life, resurrection of life. Some are raised to a resurrection of judgment. So the context tells us that life here refers not merely to the state of being biologically alive, because all the dead will have that. To have life here is to be declared righteous by the judge and to live eternally under God's favor. For God loved the world in this way. He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life. Not just being free from the threat of being physically killed. This is freedom from the threat of sinning. Not just from the threat of apostasy, and thank God for that. No, this is freedom from the threat of ever sinning again. We could never have the true equality with God that only the Son has, but consider the riches of the gospel saints. Just as that paralytic was hopelessly powerless and the very opposite of healthy and strong. So we were dead in trespasses and sins, hopelessly powerless to change ourselves or to avoid the righteous judgment of God. Yet, by the power of His voice, 
The Son of God delivers and transforms us so that we can become, according to 2 Peter 1.4, partakers of the divine nature. We have the blessed hope that one day, when our mortal life has ended, we will be freed from every last bit of sin so that we who are in Christ will be transformed into an identity of character with a father as true as his own. We will never act except as we see him act, nor will we speak but with the truth and goodness and beauty of his speech. And he will wipe every tear from our eyes. This is eternal life. And in verse 24, the son promises it to whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me. But he also speaks of a resurrection of judgment, and that is the only other possible outcome. When the voice of the Son of God speaks, all who are in the tombs will hear, and resurrection will not be optional. Friend, how do you honor the Son? He has said that whoever has seen him has seen the Father. This is why he said that no one can come to the Father except through him. When you hear his claim to be God, And more than that, his claim to be your judge. Do you honor him in that? You have heard his word. Do you believe the one who sent him? Please don't go one more day without calling on him from your heart if you have not yet done so already. Otherwise, you will end up like the religious leaders from this chapter. A preview of their judgment is about to unfold. But the son summarizes his claim to be the judge in verse 30 where he says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And with that, having performed the sign and and sparked the controversy, the judge is now ready to declare the verdict. This is a preview of his ultimate judgment. First, he will review the evidence against the religious leaders. Let's read again, uh, let's read verses 31 through 37a. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Now let's stop here briefly and see what we can learn from the judge's review of the evidence. The son says that the religious leaders have been given testimony about him. John the Baptist testified about him, and they received it well for a time. Listen, friends, if you are not a believer, don't take the preaching of God's word lightly. He says that they were willing to rejoice in that prophet's light for a time. Now, it's wonderful to hear the preaching of God's word, and many don't have that chance But the danger to the disobedient hearer is this. 
God judges people based on the truth we have received. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus dispatches 72 of his followers. The signs they will perform are a sign that the kingdom of heaven has come near, he says in verse 9. Jesus then says that those to whom the kingdom has come near, but who still reject him, are subject to far greater punishment, far greater judgment, which he spells out in verses 11 through 15, because the proclamation of the message, especially when accompanied with genuine signs, is God's testimony. He said in verse 16, uh, Luke 10, 16, you don't have to turn there, the one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. As stated in the introduction, the signs performed by the Son of God are meant to point us to a greater reality, which is fully explained in the New Testament. And having the full Bible today, we have more revelation than they did back then. James says that whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, to him it is sin. Whoever hears the gospel message clearly, many times, but keeps rejecting the Son, is rejecting the Father who sent him. Friends, be careful to keep a tender heart before the Lord. See to it, see, I'm sorry, see that you do not, see that if you do not yield to the irresistible force of Christ moving you toward obedience unto life, he will not leave you in place. He will only move you to judgment. The religious leaders are an example of this. They hardened their heart to the scriptures which they had studied for so long. They also hardened their heart to, to the prophetic preaching of John the Baptist. Now they harden their hearts all the more before the Son of God himself. Let's read verses 37b. We're going to pick up in 37 where we left off. To 43a. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. We're going to stop right there. On the basis of their failure to believe Jesus, he condemns them with what D.A. Carson calls a triple indictment. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one he has sent. Let's break that down. You have not heard his voice, that is to say, they did not receive the Father's clear message in the Scriptures. You have never seen His form. That is to say, they did not perceive that their hatred of the Son standing right in front of them is actually their hatred of the Father. You do not have His Word abiding in you. That is to say, they have rejected God's Word rather than treasuring it in their hearts. And how does the Son know this? Because, 38, they do not believe the one whom God has sent. How does he know in verse 42 that they do not have the love of God within them? Because, verse 43, he came in his Father's name and they did not receive him. Indeed, in chapter 8, Jesus is going to say, 
If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. As established earlier, they reveal by their hatred of the son that they have hated his father as well. They rejected God's written word. Now they are rejecting his eternal word to his face. As established, sorry, let's read the last verses of this chapter. Starting at verse 39, just for context. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now, do you remember the precious promise that Christ gave in verse 24? He said that whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed, perfect tense, from death to life. Notice how the Son says that believers who will be raised to the resurrection of life already have life if they believe. Glorious to think about, but dreadful if we consider the alternative. See, these men, by their unbelief, were handing themselves over to spiritual blindness, which was death even while they lived. They studied God's word for generations, but they missed the message so badly that they rejected the word of God himself. They had become experts in the law of Moses, but had missed the point of his law so badly that they thought it was testimony against Christ, the lawgiver himself. Christ tells them that it is precisely Moses who also testified of the Son and who would accuse them. Consider what was in dispute here. Laws regarding the Sabbath. They were discussing the law of Moses. This is the law of the Son interpreted in Matthew 5 by saying things like, You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, Do not murder. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, You moron, will be subject to hellfire. And you have heard it said, Do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Friend, that's convicting. And to the degree they knew the perfect law of God as revealed in the Scriptures, they should have been all the more convicted of their sin all the more broken, all the more humbled before God. As the hymn writer fitly puts it, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul 
I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Instead, the more they read of God's perfections and holiness, verse 40 says, the more they felt that they had life, that is, favor with God. Verse 44 says, they received so much glory, so much validation from one another, that they did not seek any from God. Even so, today, multitudes hear the hard words with which God condemns sin and console themselves by receiving comfort from one another. God loves everybody. Nobody is supposed to judge you. You're a good person. Friend, you should love, we should love to be exposed to serious preaching against our sin. We should thank God when the Holy Spirit is convicting us of sin. It actually shows that He loves us enough to be straight with us and tell us the truth. And this is how He directs us to the gospel way of escape out of judgment and into real life. Please consider that. As we move from looking at the passage itself to thinking about application of the word, examine yourself as 1 Corinthians 12 calls all of us to do. Could you be suffering from spiritual blindness? Now that question raises a paradox, because if I were suffering from spiritual blindness, how could I know? After all, one can think himself spiritual while being dead in sin and on his way to hell, superimposing his own self-serving religion over the Bible. Another one may be saved, but weak in assurance of salvation and doubting God's love in Christ. We'll look quickly at three symptoms of spiritual blindness seen in this passage, which can help us figure out what to do if we are struggling with assurance of salvation. The first was just addressed, not yielding to conviction of sin, but believing that you're good in yourself with no need for life-changing repentance. Friend, if that's your attitude, you are in danger. Another symptom of spiritual blindness from this passage is legalism. The religious leaders held others to an arbitrary standard of morality, not a a biblical one found in the Word of God, but one they made up. It was arbitrary. When you reject the application of God's law to your life, you will always invent another standard by which you can judge people. Perhaps this is over social media. Maybe it's in traffic or on the job. Becoming judgmental of others, especially over differences that are not clear in Scripture, can be one way to resist the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The final symptom of spiritual blindness to discuss here is simply the fact that, as the Son said in verse 40, they refused to come to Him to receive life. He who searches the hearts is looking for humility and submission to Him. But if we are validating one another as good enough to make heaven without Christ, we will never come to Him with saving humility. The matter of spiritual blindness is of grave importance, and may God in His mercy prevent me from becoming disqualified after I have proclaimed these scriptures from this pulpit. We must all examine ourselves, and then we must act. So then, what if you are a believer who struggles with assurance of salvation? What if you've heard about spiritual blindness now, and you're thinking you might never have been saved 
whether you are a believer or an unbeliever, instead of questioning whether you think you feel saved, ask yourself this. If we were to suppose right now that you have not been saved, but that the voice of the Son of God in Scripture is providing you an opportunity to be saved, what should your response be? First of all, if you feel convicted of sin, thank God for that. That's His love for you. He reserves discipline and chastisement for His children that unbelievers will never know. The Son of God has said these things so that you may be saved, verse 34. Second, allow your stressful anxiety over sin to drive you to the only escape from judgment that God has provided, the gospel of Christ our substitute. Remember his promise in the next chapter. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Praise God. Remember that just as in the case of the powerless and hopeless paralytic, the hope of salvation is not in our works, not in your case, or in the case of the holiest believer who ever lived. Our hope is fixed on the person and work of the Son alone. Consider his absolute identity of character with the Father. Hebrews 10.7 quotes the Son saying in the words of the psalmist, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. At the son's baptism, his father made known his pleasure to all. This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the key right here. The new covenant is not based on your faithfulness to the father but on Christ the Son's unchanging faithfulness to the Father. The new covenant is not based on your faithfulness to the Father. It is based on Christ the Son's faithfulness to His Father. And if you believe this, it will keep you returning to the throne of grace. And as you do, you will only grow in assurance of salvation. And that is not a luxury. Enjoying life in God's favor is absolutely necessary nourishment for the Christian walk. So rejoice, brethren, and believe the Son. The irresistible force of Christ Himself is moving you to life in God's favor. Delight in God's Word by His Holy Spirit. Give thanks to the Father with joy. The joy of the Lord will be your strength to labor for Him, as it is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord, Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Thanks be to God.